This episode of Beer and Bullshit is brought to you by Woodhouse Brewing Company in Toronto. Woodhouse brews the refreshing beers using only choice ingredients and no preservatives. Check out their brew pub in Toronto today and enjoy their newly opened patio. Welcome to another episode of Beer and Bullshit. We've got a fantastic episode for you this week, uh, one that I'm very excited about. My guest on the show this week is one Michael Hancock. Now, if you're a craft beer person, I probably don't need to explain any more. Uh, if you aren't, uh, let me explain that Michael Hancock is one of the uh, craft beer pioneers in Ontario, Canada. But before we get into that, yes, I'm having a beer. I'm proud to say we made it seven episodes before you heard that sound that is apparently mandatory on all beer podcasts. But that was me opening a beer because it's been a it's been a Tuesday, ladies and gents. Uh, that was Burst, a New England Pale Ale from Great Lakes Brewery. Great Lakes Brewery, of course, is an official beverage sponsor of the program. They sent me this beer along with some of their RTDs that's uh, ready to drink for the uninitiated. I've got their new gin soda and vodka soda, uh, which I had one this evening. I had a gin soda with lime. I added a couple slices of cucumber because I'm weird like that, so uh, I recommend checking one out. Have not had the burst yet, but it smells delightful, and it's Great Lakes Brewery, and it is a hoppy beverage, so I'm pretty sure I'm going to be satisfied with what I'm drinking. And speaking of satisfied, I'm pretty confident that the uh, uninitiated and the beer nerd will be quite satisfied with this week's episode. Truth be told, Michael Hancock, I knew I wanted him to be a guest on this podcast before I even had a podcast. He and I have been going back and forth actually for months trying to get him onto the show. Michael has been brewing beer since the late 80s and most recently was the brewmaster and then brewmaster emeritus at Side Launch in Collingwood. And he was a little hesitant to come on the show because as he put it, I had a reputation as a bit of a loose cannon, which is funny because he refers to himself as a loose cannon in our interview. But there were circumstances surrounding Michael's departure from his last job that needed to be handled delicately, so he wanted to make sure that would be done. Uh, He listened to the first five episodes of the show and decided he wanted to come on. We had a few ground rules, places we couldn't go, and we didn't go there. So I'll leave the listener to draw their own conclusions around that subject matter when you listen to the interview. But I'm glad Michael finally came on the show. I'm hard-pressed to think of anyone in Ontario beer with as deep knowledge and passion for craft beer as Michael. Honestly, I feel a little bit like we barely scratched the surface. There's so much we could have talked about. Uh, And truth be told, there was a lot going on at my house when we recorded with my kid and my dog in bedtime. So I was hovered over the mute button a bit and maybe a little distracted, but we had a good chat. Michael took some time to look back at his long and illustrious career in beer. Hopefully it's a career that's not over. Uh, but, you know, whatever happens next, for sure, he's made a deep and lasting impact in the craft beer scene. And, uh, yeah, he's a cool dude. Here's Michael Hancock. You're like the uh, original gangster of Ontario craft beer. I mean, I, I there's only a handful of names that have been doing craft beer in Ontario as long as you have. I mean, Ron, you got Ron Keith, myself. You've obviously got a Amsterdam crew. Yep. Um, and Brick. 
Yeah. And I don't know if Muskoka was around then, but Creamore had just started. I think and one of the things I'm really lucky uh, uh, to have done is be one of the first. <laughs> it makes it quite easy, whether it's the first, one of the first on a small scale in a, in a brew pub, um, or one of the first, for instance, to do a wheat beer, mm -hmm. uh, which, which I was, and I think that helped put it on the map. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, the wheat beer wasn't just because you were the first. I mean, the wheat beer was largely regarded and still is as one of the best in the world, right? That was kind of the kind of what put you on the map in terms of people hearing about you was the the vice beer was ranked by, I guess it was rate beer as one of the beer. best in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just because you were first. It was pretty good beer. It still is. <laughs> well, and it still is. I really mean that because obviously my concern is... Um, when you haven't been around for a year or so, you know, to keep trying what I would still regard to be the flagship product. And I think it is probably the biggest seller. I just had one yesterday and I've got one in front of me right now, actually. And it's nice. tasting, it's taste continuing to taste really good. Which well, that's is good. So how did you get started in beer? I mean, people, maybe people don't know because there's new people finding Ontario craft beer all the time. So maybe mm -hmm. people don't even know the Denison story, but how did that start? Well, it was long before, I mean, not long before, it was before Denison's. Uh, at age 21, um, I was uh, thinking of leaving England. My mother was Canadian, had been Canadian, but living in England. At least I had relatives over here. And I was a mechanical engineer, and I thought, well, why don't I go over to North America? Because England's often tough to start working in, <laughs> uh, all the uh, hierarchy and so on. Go over to North America and maybe I can get a, you know, a, a, a not part-time, but a, t a temp relatively temporary job with my family business. Well, my family business was Molson at the time. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was always part of me growing up was, uh, that company in Canada that made, made beer. And, uh, um, f very fortunately I was offered a job, uh, by the company, age 21 and I, I came over to do energy management. Um, basically bring some European thought to the way, you know, companies operate, manufacturing companies operate in, in North America because they'd just been hit with the um, oil embargo, you know, 1973, right? Everyone was desperate to save. You're saying this like I remember, Michael. Right? <laughs> Not that old. Well, was a, put it this way, there were, uh, that's the first time they really felt vulnerable to okay. uh you know the oil producers and there was this big move to try and reduce energy consumption so are you but, actually related to the molson family mm, yep, yep okay I, I didn't know um, that no it's not something i publicize i mean um the the relationship is that the my great grandfather was the guy who ran the brewery okay so it's quite distant but um that's cool you know, Yep, in the 30s, your, that your, was. Your beer roots go way back. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. So anyway, I came over and um, I was surprised because I really enjoyed the beer business. And I, my sort of what I thought might have been a one-year or maybe two-year work um, assignment um, became 10 years. You know, oh. I worked for Molson for 10 years till 1986. That um, was 76 to 86. Um, I was at uh, the Toronto Brewery that no longer exists, which was on Fleet Street. 
That's mm -hmm. where a bunch of condos are now. Yep. But it was the the uh, biggest and most modern brewery in Canada at the time. Was the transition from there to starting your own thing, or was there something in between? Um, no, it was a case where we parted uh, in 1986, largely because I don't think I'm a big company person. Mm -hmm. I've been called by certain people as not being a team player. And while I regard that as a bit of a compliment in some ways, it also means you probably, uh, you know, would not be good working in the you know, large company environment. Right. So um, we, we parted in 1986. Uh, I was offered a job in Vancouver by them that didn't appeal to me. And I think that was possibly part of the intention there. Mm. Um, and we left. What's the impetus for craft beer? I mean, obviously you've got your, you've got your feet wet at Molson. So you've learned a lot of the logistics and big brewery side of things and learned maybe, you know, being a company man wasn't your thing. So you can definitely mm. see how you're starting to lay the foundation for doing craft beer. But I mean, in 1986, how does an Ontarian or someone living in Ontario even start to think about craft beer? I and mean, what's your exposure to craft beer at the time? Well, uh, there was a bit of a, a gap there because I said, okay, so I've left Molson here. I'd really want to do brewing school. Mm. So I went to, as a private you know, student, to Siebel Institute of Technology in Chicago, uh, the 1987 course. And um, it was a great experience. While I was there, it may have been earlier, I met somebody at a wedding who was a German, um, uh, uh, actually a German prince, funnily enough. His name was Prince Leutpold von Bayern. And I, I met him and he had the idea or been thinking of bringing, bringing his brew pub equipment over to North America, because that was his sideline, aside from a, a larger brewery. And he was gonna put a brew pub in Montreal with a few <laughs> Canadian business people. And uh, I got, uh, you know, introduced to him. And I think he realized that I, you know, with 10 years of, of Molson background and, and, and I was quite keen to actually get into craft beer and certainly a smaller operation. Maybe mm -hmm. he thought I'd be an asset. And so we, we uh, you can't say hooked up these days, can you? <laughs> <laughs> we, we formed a, a, a friendship and a, and a business relationship. And we also convinced him to move that brew pub to Toronto. And that's what became 75 Victoria Street in Toronto. Okay, okay. Also known as Growlers and Denison's and so on and so forth. Right, I mean, it's, your story almost sounds made up. <laughs> like, like I worked at Molson and then met a German prince who went, <laughs> yeah. a beer fairy tale. Yeah, well, it was a great privilege to work with him because he's actually a you know, he was a hardworking guy. He actually was a lawyer technically, but he had taken over his uh, grandmother's business of brewing and he, beer was just in his, in his blood. And I think he sensed that I also was really into beer culture. Um, so that was a good, a good, you know, relationship there. And I was certainly very fortunate to be immersed you know, in, in, in German beer culture, just by, by basically doing business with him. I traveled over to Germany a couple of times, did all, you know, the, obviously the Oktoberfest, but more rec more local, um, uh, uh, beer festivals and stuff like that. 
Yeah. And uh, that was it. That was uh, the start of Denison's. Well, it sounds like a pretty good beer pedigree. I mean, I'm assuming you had some of the British pub culture from the days of your youth, and then you had Molson, and then you had... Yeah, not a lot of pub culture, um, because actually, uh, as I said to Crystal Luxmore um, on one of her first interviews years ago, because she asked me the same thing about, you know, British pub culture and so on. I said, well, actually, when I was at university, we didn't drink much beer. Um, you know, going down to the local pub, you were regarded as those damn students, you know, who lived down the road and all the old fogies didn't want you coming into their living room. And so what we did is we sat around a lot of the time and listened to Pink Floyd and the Allman Brothers and smoking various drugs and, and doing other drugs for that matter. And so that was my, uh, my entertainment. It was not, it was not beer. Folks, are you like me? Do you like supporting independent breweries? Yeah, you do. What better independent brewery to support right now than the Indie Alehouse? Indie is right in the name, so you know they're independent. They're located in Toronto. Uh, their brew pub is in the Junction, and they have a brewery in Italy in the Manulife Center as well. Of course, these are weird times for going out. Maybe you're not ready. Maybe you don't even live in Toronto. That's okay. You can still try the delicious beers that they're making at the Indie Alehouse because they made it easy. Beer to your door, ordered from the comfort and safety of your own home. That's my favorite way to order things. You got free delivery anywhere in Toronto if you order 12 beers or more, and a flat rate anywhere else in Ontario. Why not order a stay-home pale ale? $1 from every can of stay-home purchased will be donated to the fund that supports their employees that have been temporarily laid off due to COVID-19. Check them out at IndieAleHouse.com. So you've, you launched your brew pub with the help of a German prince. What did the beer landscape in Ontario look like at the time? I mean, it, it seems like it would be daunting to understand what the market would be interested in at that time. Yeah, well, there was, as I mentioned before, there was Brick, there was Cremor. Cremor was 87, I guess. I can't remember when Brick was. Brick was probably 84. Um, one other brew pub in, in Toronto who made a number of different kinds of beers. And we thought that we would have a good chance of getting a, a good following for making authentic German style beers. Um, because we could order the yeast from Germany, from you know Prince Louis Paul's breweries. Uh, at that time, there weren't the yeast banks around that you can just you know, order yeast from. So, um, And that was our niche. And uh, we started with a pale lager which, funnily enough, is pretty much the recipe for side launch mountain lager. Mm, really? Uh, the pale lager, yeah. Well, I mean, it's not much of a recipe because it's very, very simple and it comes down to technique and ingredients. But um, we started with that and a dark lager, which we called Royal Donkel, yep. which you know is basically what side launch dark is, or uh, which is now called Midnight something. Mm -hmm. um, and um, we started with those. And the interesting thing here, this was quite unusual, it, is we sold um, these beers in a filtered and unfiltered state. We had four taps. We had dark lager filtered and unfiltered and pale lager filtered and unfiltered. Mm. And it didn't take long before we realized that the dark lager was aged long enough that it looked filtered even though it wasn't. Mm. So we dropped the filtered dark lager 
and the very first um, spring, that was November, and then springtime came around and Prince Leopold said, well, you know what you got to make? You got to make wheat beer and I'll show you how. So that was the introduction of the wheat, which was, um, I guess, May, uh, tw uh, May 1990. Yeah. Yeah. So that beer's been around a while. I mean, all, all of those beers are still around. Well, I guess you can get the mountain lager if you're a licensee or direct from the brewery, but those are all pretty old recipes that are still kicking around somewhere in Ontario. Actually, the brewery, I think, has realized that restricting its um, availability maybe wasn't the best idea and has now, I think, started selling it um, province-wide by delivery for those that want to nice. pay, pay for it that way. But um, it was called originally Growler's Lager, and then it was later called Bavarian Hell um, <laughs> because, because I was importing the, the, the malt from, from Bavaria. And or at least I wasn't at the time, excuse me. I had the, in mind to import it from Bavaria. And I did a couple of test brews with Bavarian malt, and it just transformed that beer. Um, and so basically from, I think about 1995 onwards, we made it with, with all Bavarian malt. So was the reaction positive from the beginning? Like, I, that sounds like, I can't even think of a brew pub. That, if a brew pub did that now, it would feel gimmicky. Like oh, we do all German styles. We have five, like, that sounds amazing right now. Yeah. What does 1980, what is 1990 Toronto? How does that the reaction to that concept? I think the reaction was good. Um, you know, unfortunately, the business model there was was sort of faded from the start. Mm -hmm. um, we had a ton of space. We had two floors. I don't know how many seats we had. We had a bar downstairs and basically two restaurants upstairs. We were paying over $40,000 a month in rent. And um, we needed about $3 million in sales a year just to break even. Wow. And that's that's pretty decent amount. Um, shortly after we opened, Ron Keefe opened uh, with the Granite, yep. Mount Pleasant and Eglinton. And he had, uh, you know, less ambitious uh, <laughs> plans, you know, a, sm a sm smaller uh, um, venue and, and, and so on and so forth. And he's obviously survived, hasn't he? He's, uh, <laughs> well, nothing survives, yeah. nothing survives that Victoria Street location. I mean, Duggins was probably, Duggins lasted the, a probably year. the same yeah. landlord, right? So imagine the expense has always been the same. I mean, even Molson couldn't make a go of it and had to change concepts. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's an interesting space with a steeped history in Ontario beer, but obviously very difficult to make it financially worthwhile. Yeah, that's true. And I'm sure Molson is having a tough time with it as well. Especially right um, now. Yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. And it was quite difficult because a lot of our, 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 our customers were coming from east, west of Young Street, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so it was always a bit of a walk to get to, you know, Victoria. Victoria, the east of Young was seen to be um, a, a sort of quiet area that had potential. Yeah. But actually <laughs> that funny. potential didn't, didn't really occur in, in our ownership anyway. Yeah. Because the... The um, the theater district opened on the west you know on the west side of this was even before uh, you know the major theaters uh, on the west side of town. So from 1990, 
the the wheat beer launched how long was it before i mean I, maybe i'm just like being a fanboy because i know that beer is like it's the gold standard for wheat beer in ontario was there a point at which you were just like okay i've got gold here well we had a very very strong following but it never meant you know <laughs> huge income let's face it because, right um we were a brew pub and by the way we it should be remembered that we were not allowed to sell off premise there was, right there was no takeout beer everything had to be consumed <laughs> in that space um but i will say that what probably really made the wheat beer was uh josh oaks do you know josh who i mean no. by josh? okay josh oaks was a early rate beer um he wasn't just a, a rater or a writer. I think he was a moderator or somehow involved with rate beer uh, on the Canadian end of things. Uh, great beer enthusiast. And he wrote a glowing review of our wheat beer. Uh, first of all, I think, I can't remember what the, what the publication was, but eventually on rate beer. And that just started, it, take, you know, it took off from that point on. Imagine a world when not everyone with a phone in their hand could review a beer and a yeah. review actually meant something. <laughs> I didn't even know what a cell phone was. <laughs> I mean, there were people, you know, wandering around with suitcases and I think they might have been a cell phone. <laughs> the original. Are you a bar owner or restaurant owner wishing it was easier to order beer? Well, guess what? Now you can with Order Simply. Order Simply is a web-based platform which makes it easier for bars, restaurants, and other licensees to purchase the great Ontario craft beers that I sometimes talk about on this very show. From finding new products, making the checkout and payment seamless, and tracking and invoicing orders, Order Simply makes the process simple. That makes sense. It's called Order Simply. I get it now. The name, I, I just got it. I just got it. On top of making ordering more simple, for buyers and sellers, Order Simply has partnerships with local charities providing a portion of all their profits to fight food insecurity in their customers' communities, which you gotta love, unless you're a piece of garbage. Order Simply is launching their platform this summer. Check them out at ordersimply.ca, find them on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So at a certain point, obviously, you realized it wasn't financially viable to stay in the space. Was there a gap when you stopped brewing your beer? Cause, or has, has the Vice beer been brewed consistently since the first, since 1990? No, um, what happened was, um, uh, I mean, I know you were, you were interviewing Greg Taylor the other day, mm -hmm. um, and he was quite honest about things. And that, and I will be too, is that we were thrown out of the place by the landlord. Okay. After 20, 15 years or whatever it was, because we could not afford to pay the rent. Right. Um, and, it's a fair uh, reason to be thrown out though. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. So we did a midnight move and I saw this coming and I said, what am I going to do? And I agreed to that the wheat beer would be the, the one beer that would be really good to keep alive. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. This was 2003. Mm -hmm. And I kept the wheat beer alive. And then later on the dark lager um, by brewing at uh, um, Mill Street. Right. I mean, Mill Street hadn't hadn't opened at that stage 2003. So I yeah. helped them set up Mike Duggan and everything set up the place in the uh, distillery district. Yep. And the deal was that I would get a tank of theirs to call my own. 
and brew wheat beer in there. So I did that every week or two and shipped out kegs and had no packaging. So I know Steve Abrams very well and um, and a guy called Jeff Cooper, who was originally one of their partners too. Yeah. And Mike Duggan. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I needed more capacity. So I, I got in touch with a, a friend who'd actually been uh, one of our employees at the brew pub, Ken Woods. Okay. Is of Black Oak Brewing. Yeah. And we started making wheat beer at his place as well. And then later on, I can't remember when I brought in the dark lager, but that was probably when I moved to cool. Mm -hmm. Some people have said I'm the horror of the industry and, and <laughs> I have been around. Yeah, I was <laughs> yeah, going to say that you once ran down all the systems you've brewed your wheat beer on. And it was pretty amazing considering that it's been pretty consistent. Yeah, we definitely had some periods when it was not, not great, but um, um yeah, it must have been, you know, it was quite a challenge, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was on my radar until probably 2010, 2011. So that would have been well into cool by then, right? By that time I was at cool and I, funnily enough, I was actually also brewing in Amsterdam. Okay. Um, Where did because, you not brew, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> because cool uh, had a can filler that they hadn't got ready um, when I would really have liked to use it. It had some startup issues. And yet Amsterdam did have a functioning can filler. Huh. So I made a deal with them. If I brewed with them, I could use their can filler. So so you yeah. went from cool to, I mean, the narrative as I see it was that somebody wanted to start a brewery and decided to tap you yeah. and your recipes. Is that a fair assessment of how Side Launch started? Yeah. Yeah. I was 2010. Yeah. Um, I met this group of people. I was thrilled because they, um, certainly showed the ability to, uh, to, you know, to raise a de decent amount of capital. Yeah. Um, uh, it was, it was really great. They wanted to open, um, in, in, in the Creamore Collingwood area. I did spend a little time trying to convince them to, to, to open in, in, in Toronto. And, um, but they quickly realized that, it, you know, with the, property taxes and so on and so forth. It wasn't a good idea. So we turned our attention back to um, Collingwood and in the meantime visited uh, equipment manufacturers, um, a company called Zeman in Germany. I went over with uh, Garnet Siddle, who was the only other employee at the time. And uh, we had uh, discussions with them and I did a, a, a brew of a pale ale in Germany. Mm. Um, for Zeman came back here because it was in the fermenter and then they went bankrupt. <laughs> and this is one of the largest brewing equipment manufacturers in the world. I mean, way bigger than NSI or whatever, you know, yep. came quite a lot later. And so I never got to taste that beer. Oh, it was probably the best one you ever brewed, right? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I have no idea. It's the one that got away. Yeah. Somebody yeah. drank and, that beer. You must be, someone well, drank actually, that beer. The brewer did say it was pretty good, but you know, I have no idea <laughs> as to whether he's being a nice guy or not. You know? So anyway, you went yeah. from, okay, so I'm just trying to put the, do the chronology. You already had uh, basically all the beers that Side Launch launched with were, you, were your original recipes, right? I mean, the wheat beer, the Dunkel, and the pale ale, was that one of your Pale ale was a beer I hadn't um, made before. 
Um, I mean, I was very, very na narrow minded and narrow in my, you know, German style beers at the brew mm -hmm. pub. But Garnet asked me to make a pale ale. And I said, okay, I did some research. I thought American style pale ale. And I did pilot brews in a, the garage of a place in Cabot, Cabbage Town uh, during probably 2013. And that was the pale ale. Okay. Eventually opened. Now, when did uh, the mountain lager come to be? Because that is one of, was one of my favorite lagers ever. So good. Well, we built the brewery side launch in 2013, opened um, spring of 2014. And, you know, the, the beer took off. We had a, quite a hardworking sales team. Um, and we, we would just swamped. We could not produce enough beer. Yeah. for the first year and then we put in more tanks and then we couldn't make enough beer for the second year and it just we were growing at 60 percent a year so there was even though back in the back of my mind i'd love to have introduced the mountain lager or a pale lager it simply wasn't possible and i think it was after a year or two after we opened that we finally saw an opportunity to make it so so you're sitting did, on it for a minute for a while waiting we did test brews yeah and, also, uh, you mentioned side launches, like astronomical growth, which I thought was just the perception because all of a sudden it seemed like side launch came out of nowhere and was everywhere. But no, it's you were selling and selling and selling. So it was a quickly successful company, at least it appeared that way. Yeah, no, it, it was. And, and, and there's no question it was very successful um, uh, in terms of sales and volume growth. Right. Um, there were some real challenges in view of the amount of money that had been spent and on, you know, from a capital point of view, but also uh, ongoing expenses because of the structure of the business mm -hmm. made it very difficult to, to turn a profit. And there were, you know, a couple more calls for cash um, in those mm. first uh, two, two or three years from the investors, which included me. Now, I recognize we may be getting to sticky territory here, but I feel like I heard less and less about Michael Hancock being part of that operation. And I was curious, always curious as to what was going on there, which culminated in one of what I, you know, just described as one of my favorite loggers suddenly disappearing. I don't know if I've messed up those timelines or if you want to get into it, but I was all, I've always thought you were the best asset of that company. And now you're, not part of it so we'll tread carefully but <laughs> oh, okay I'll, I'll obviously be be careful but i'll be truthful at the same time um when a business when a group of business people hire um people for their expertise um and this certainly was the case with me and with um this guy curtis Singh, who who had built creamore and he you know as i say he helped with building um there comes a time very often when they don't necessarily want to hear <laughs> what you've been hired for. And I think this has happened um, quite a few times. This is not unique. I can think right away, Brick Brewing, Jim Brickman, Gary McMullen, Muskoka, um, Greg Taylor, you know, uh, yeah. um, um, Steam Whistle much more recently. And this, I think, was basically what was happening in our case. Um, I actually was the last of the original management team to still be around. 
in 2018. Everyone else had gone basically in management. Yeah. Um, wow. And so it was quite a, a, a turbulent environment. Um, I will say it was fueled by that good old thing, you know, wanting to make money. And when you, when you're in business with people who, who are in the financial business, uh, and money appears not to be made, they will look for any way possible, you know, to find out how to rectify that, which includes, uh, saying goodbye to people. And Garnet was, was one of the first casualties there. Right who was the CEO. Yeah. It's always interesting when you see that the talent that has built the company suddenly has too much to say about making the product or making the company versus making the money. And unfortunately get squeezed out. You can, you can almost pinpoint it if you're paying attention from a, from a consumer point of view. I mean, I feel like I could same thing with steam whistle. I started to see some weird things happening there that weren't consistent with what I thought of, of the brand. And same with same with side launch. As you're saying this, I'm remembering a time now when side launch wheat cans were essentially becoming sour on their own. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know that you guys made the decision to pull those from shelves. And I remember mm -hmm. applauding that at the time because a lot of breweries probably would have tried to be quiet about it. And I can only imagine what that conversation was like and who was probably leading the decision to recall that beer within the company at the time. And maybe I'm just, you know, imagining things, but I, I can imagine where you were on that argument. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've always been <laughs> tried to be honest in life and open. And some people have referred to me as a loose cannon. That's another expression, but, um, I, I think that honesty is very important. And we felt that if we were honest and took the product back and dealt with everyone the way they should be, that, that we'd come out on top. Um, we, you know, we, we apparently did there, it cost the company a lot of money, but I think, you know, our sales did not suffer. It apparently, um, it did happen a second time a few months later. So important question, those recipes that you've had forever, do you still own them? Is like, how does that, could you make those beers again somewhere else, please? No, <laughs> no, really? No. Oh my God. I, I, I certainly felt I was, um, had teamed up with, you know, a really great crowd that will crowd crowds, the wrong word, uh, team. Um, and I basically sold my company Denison's to them, which included the recipes. Wow. Um, I, quite frankly, never expected to be leaving. Um, certainly not the, you know, the way it happened. I expected to be crawling in through the door age 75, you know, or using my walker to get around the brewery. Right. But that, that obviously has not happened. But um, so can I make those beers? Um, no, there's non non compete clauses that basically say I cannot. Um, truth of the matter is most people know that non-compete clauses are there to be challenged. Um, and they're very hard to enforce. That has not been one of my desires to get into that kind of, I don't really want to make those beers again. But what if I, I want you to? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, 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 uh, um, I put everything I had into that brewery, um, you know, uh, I'm 65 years old. I'm not going to go out in this climate, start 
uh, a brewery or, or, or certainly not start making these beers um, in front of, you know, waving a, a flag in front of the, the bull. Um, it's just not, just not worth it. So. Right. I don't get, I, as much as you said you're a shit disturber, I think you know where to draw the line. I think you're being pretty polite about things, frankly. So this is an insane time, as you mentioned, but I think Ontario would love to know if you're going to make beer somewhere else ever again, because you make fantastic beer and we want to drink it. Um, I think a lot has happened in the last few years. I mean, I was sort of early in on that, on the craft brewing scene. Yeah. I was always about simplicity and authenticity and, you know, we don't really... give a shit about that stuff anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that put was important to me. Put fruit in it, Michael. <laughs> I think that was was one of the reasons that I, I was successful, and um, I think now there are other people making really good examples of the beers that I started with. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the the, the mountain lager, yes, it's still fantastic. I agree, but there's also some great examples out there. Gaslight Hellas from Muddy York. Yeah, uh, um, um, uh, Wellington County came up with their. Uh, Hellas or yep. whatever. There's a there's a ton of them around, and I think that actually shines a light on what a strange decision it was to withdraw Mountain from the market, right when every, everyone else was starting to make really good Hellas, and that category itself was starting to take off. Yeah, I mean, I and think, it was like every beer nerd in Ontario it was their favorite beer, and then all of a sudden it was gone. I was. I mean, it seems spiteful. I'll just put that out there and we can let it die there, but definitely an unfortunate decision. I'm glad to see that because of consumer demand, it's crept back in. So I, I know that it's available. I can get it on tap in one spot in London, I think, um, because there's a, there's a place called um, Company Bar that some guys I went to high school with, the Wolf Brothers own it, and they've hired this guy, Nick Farmer, who is a mm -hmm. fantastic beer guy who came from Milos and he curates their, their beer tap. And he said, we got to have mountain lager on tap. So you can get it there at least. So there's one place in town. I can still find it on tap. I think beer town too, actually. There's a beer. Okay. Town. Yeah, no, I funnily enough, beer town were one of the, I think if I'm not mistaken, they're a multi, uh, it's a multi location franchise. franchise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I do know that they were very vocal when it was um, not made available. Uh, and 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 to licensees originally, and they said, you know, if you don't uh, uh, make this beer available to licensees that want it, we're we're going to drop you as a brewery. Um, so yeah. Well, bless so, those vocal. Thank them. Yeah, yeah, bless the vocal bar owners and bartenders who are speaking up for consumers. And um, plenty of others. Yeah. 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 No, that was a, a strange decision. So. Didn't really answer my question though. Fair. Are you are you brewing beer now? Do you even homebrew? Like, do you get nope, the bug? No, funny enough, I've never homebrewed. I mean, I brewed, um, I brewed cider actually with apple apple juice and wheat beer yeast. But that oh was yeah, a long, long time ago for fun. But no, I brew, I homebrewed in in uh, early days at Molson, so that might have been 1980, and I made ginger beer with Molson Canadian yeast, and it wow. was a it was a disaster. <laughs> Sounds like a disaster. It was sulfurous and so on. Um, 
No, I, I honestly feel, I mean, if somebody approached me and asked me, I, I might consider making beer, but my skill set is pretty well defined, you know. Right. And um, I devoted a t the hours I worked were just crazy right from the start when we opened the brew pub. And um, I'm 65. I know most you know most people don't see 65 as a cutoff date, but I I see it as a reason not to go out um, beating the you know beating the bush, beating the pavement, yeah, to, to make more, particularly sure. in this environment. So what I I mean what I am I know good at is um, uh, troubleshooting, mechanical troubleshooting. Mm -hmm. So I've done some um, consulting work with uh, a great brewery run by some good friends, Microbrasserie Chalavois. Okay. In um, Bay St. Paul in Quebec. Wonderful place that started in 1996, uh, doing Belgian beers, all Belgian beers. And uh, so I did some consulting with them last December. And that's the kind of thing I'd like to do. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're not making beer, you're still mm -hmm. drinking beer. What do you drink these days besides, you know, beers that you developed the recipe for? Who are you liking? Um, well, I will say that I still have an incredible soft spot for the wheat beer. Mm -hmm. um, just love it. But beyond that, um, this this will not go down well with craft brewers. Oh, good. Um, not for the reason that you're thinking. <laughs> but uh, having gone to the Czech Republic yeah. um, in November of whenever it was, a couple of years ago, and, and you know, get, get, getting immersed in Czech beers, um, I uh, developed a love for Czech Far. Oh yeah, um, because it's a bit softer than Pilsner or Kell. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I've got I've got cans of that in my fridge, and I, you know the the main thing here is that it is so reasonably priced. I do not understand how they can. They they must be dumping. Well, they're not dumping because it's very cheap over in Czech Republic as well, mm -hmm. but. You know, to get a 500 mil can of imported beer in fairly good condition, which is used not to be the case, for 250 or something, you know, makes it um, it makes it hard but not impossible for me to buy. Uh, let's just say um, a wonderful example: um, uh, Luke Lafontaine's beer at Godspeed, his Czech lager, which was inspired by the same trip that we took together. Yes, I know about uh, he, this trip. It sounded he, yeah, like a he, hell of a trip. It was a great trip, and Matt, uh, uh, Matt from um, Tooth and Nail was on that trip too, and Milos was too. Of course he was. Um, of course he was. He's on. He's on all of them. But um, <laughs> basically, Luke is a go-getter, and he came back and said, "I'm going to make a good Czech lager," and he did. I was without a brewery at that time, so it made it a little difficult to produce the Czech lager. Uh, and I couldn't really, uh, in the end, I did do what I would call an, an emotional, uh, a nostalgic hookup with um, uh, um, Link with uh, um, Chloe, love it, with the brew pub. And that's why we produced the Czech lager at the brew pub for the 30th anniversary uh, on Victoria Street. Oh, nice. I didn't want to do German for reasons that, you know, probably obvious. Uh, I figured I could get away with Czech. So what became of that beer? I, I don't even... That beer sold out quickly. Yeah. It was available. I mean, we made 10 hectoliters of it. 
Yeah. Um, it sold at the brew pub on tap for, I don't know, a few weeks. But they also sent, uh, bottled quite a bit of it and sent it up to um, Creamore retail store. Okay. Um, because it's batch and uh, as part of the Creamore organization. So right. you, you could buy that, you know, until a couple of months later at nice. uh, the Creamore brewery. Yeah. Nice. Well, it's been lovely talking to you, sir. I'm, mm. I'm glad we finally managed to make this happen. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure. I'm sorry it took so long. <laughs> it's okay. It's a weird time. I get it. It is. Yeah, exactly. But I'm, uh, I'm going to say I'm a free man now. <laughs> Good. So. I'm glad. Well, <laughs> as long as you're happy and you're still enjoying your own wheat beer and you're a free man, I think that's all you can ask for. Yeah. If you find yourself in London, I know where Czech Bar is always on tap. Thanks for listening. Be sure and wash your hands.